0: And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled, So he asked Pharaoh's officials, who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Flipping to our New Testament reading in the book of Luke, chapter 3, 23, starting in verse 39. We find two criminals side by side with Jesus, and it says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And and we indeed justly, for we are deserving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. It seems appropriate that the song selected for today right before this sermon was, I need thee every hour. (laughs) Indeed, appropriate and true on many levels. Let me open us in prayer. Father, we do indeed need you every hour. We need you every hour of our lives to see you for who you are, to see your goodness rightly. We need you every hour to see our condition before you. And we need your help every hour to walk rightly. And I need you this morning to speak rightfully and truthfully about all these matters to encourage us here this morning. So please be with the speaking and in the listening of your word preached this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of today's sermon is Remember Me, taken from the two passages just read. I'm sure you figured that part out. But what does it mean to remember? Now, normally when we talk about remembering, we mean something like trivia. Right, uh, lunchtime, I with some coworkers. Someone says, hey, who was that guy who sang that one hit song in the 90s? Or who was that actor in that one movie? Right, trivial things. Or perhaps slightly more practically, um, on the way out the door to church, for instance. Maybe this very morning, there's some wives here who, who told their husband on the way out to the car, hey, can you grab that dish on your way out? You Don't forget that. We've got to give it back to so-and-so. And it's important to remember those things are easy to forget. And husbands should be given extra grace should they, should they slip up. It's a trivial thing, a small thing. It happens all the time. But in the Bible, remembering is usually much more. To remember is often referenced in relation to action, to duty, particularly faithful action toward covenant or a promise. At a wedding, for instance, what might the preacher say to the new couple? Now remember your vows. Now is that couple in danger of forgetting that they were married? I'm not. Um, but what does he mean? He means make good to walk in those promises, to do them, to make good on the promises that you made to, to help someone. Now, God is often spoken of as remembering things too, like his faithfulness and his promises. Psalm one hundred five eight says, he remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. Or, as Pastor Wayne mentioned a few months back, it says, Genesis 8, God remembered Noah in the ark. Now, is that mental recall? No, that was, that was a saving remembrance to, to bring Noah and his family safely to dry ground. And then there are times when God's people pray that God not remember them, right? So David in the Psalms many times says, oh, Lord, do not remember my sins of youth. And what is he saying there? He's saying, oh, please, Lord, don't bring the consequences that my deeds truly deserve. But one particular category of remembering is that of individuals crying out with great emotion, near desperate pleas for someone to help them. Remember me is their cry. There are several specific cases of this in the Bible where a human cries out for help. You may remember some of these, including Hannah, who prays for a child, and the Lord answers that with the prophet Samuel is her son. There was Samson crying out to God in his very last moments, God gives him a great victory over the Philistines. Job, of course, in the heights of his suffering, many times asks God to remember him, and he gets perhaps even more of an answer than he was ready for. Of course, several other cases we won't cover today. But the very first human to make this exact request in Scripture is Joseph, pleading to another human, the cupbearer, to help him. And the very last human to make this request in recorded Scripture is the thief on the cross asking Jesus for help. So contrasting these two cases will be our focus this morning. Now I'll be spending most of the time on Joseph, a scenic tour, if you will, through his life and key lessons, with all those working to establish this point, that Joseph was an innocent man, he did what was right and helped those around him, and therefore his request for help was most reasonable. But his result from another human was disappointment then we'll close the sermon with a brief contrast to the thief on the cross working to establish this point that the thief was a guilty man he did what was wrong harmed those around him and therefore his request for help seemed unlikely to succeed but his result from jesus was remarkable so first we turn to the case of joseph very familiar with all of us we'll go quickly through this All the different points here. His life contains one of the heaviest stories, though, we find in Scripture, of betrayal, injustice, and repeated crushing disappointments. From today's reading, we found Joseph in prison with an unusual case of some high-ranking officials being put in his charge, him, by God's grace, interpreting their dreams, and then pleading for their help. But to appreciate what's happening in that passage, we need to back up and take a brief refresher of some context. Who was this Joseph, and how did he get in that situation? So let's take that scenic tour, starting in Genesis chapter 37, where we find this in verse 2. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing a flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. So immediately after mentioning his brothers, the text reminds us they were half-brothers, right, from different mothers. Now, Joseph's mother was Rachel, the beloved, the favorite wife of Jacob. But these other brothers were from the less favored wives. So here we get some family tension right there from the beginning. Next it says, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, we know his brothers were violent and murderous. So it's not very surprising that he might be able to find some, some dirt on them. But whatever the nature of his report, it clearly poisoned their relationship. Then we read, how it gets worse, verse 3 and 4. Now Jacob loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. See, Jacob here shows favoritism to Joseph, and not just a, a private mental preference. No, he makes it overt by giving this costly robe that anybody can look on and see the famous amazing technicolor dream coat as lord webber called it now this coat was at least an expensive thing you know a, a luxury item that might stir anyone to have a normal level of jealousy but some commentators have noted that the the wording for the cloak the garment was the same type used for for regal clothing you know like a like a king would wear like, his, like a prince would wear so surely to the brothers It had an air of pretension about it, right? Every time Joseph wore it, aha, here comes our brother, the prince. Indeed, they hated him for it and hated their father loved him more than them. Next, Joseph has these two dreams. You'll remember where he seems to have his family bow down to him as if he's the king, furthered by his robe. And then in verse five, it says, now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. After he later tells them the second dream, very similar, scripture adds in verse 11, they were now jealous of him. Hatred, growing hatred, jealousy, some translations say envy. Surely they're thinking, will this man rule over us? We won't have him. We don't want him. Now, does that situation sound familiar? See, Joseph is in many ways a picture, uh, a prefiguring of Christ, Note that Jesus was also a favored son, a rightly favored son, in whom the father was well pleased. He too was destined to rule, but likewise hated by many of his own people who didn't want him to be king over them. And the reason they hated Jesus was the same. In the book of Mark, we read of Pontius Pilate presiding over Jesus. It says, he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered Jesus up. The Jews were envious, jealous that Jesus had the father approval, and they didn't, that Jesus was gaining power, and they weren't. And they treated Jesus about as well as Joseph's brothers are about to treat him. Joseph's brothers see him coming from far off to to visit them, and immediately they plot to murder him and then throw his body in a pit. Wait, they say, let's not get blood on our hands by first murdering him. Let's just throw him into a pit and leave him there. Maybe he'll die of natural causes like dehydration or starvation. Then the brothers make one more change to the plan. No, 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 wait. Let's let's just sell him as a slave, right? Get some silver for it. We won't get our hands dirty. And we'll make a few bucks. That's lovely. Betrayed for a few pieces of silver. So here's another shadow in Joseph's story of how Jesus will likewise be detr- betrayed by Judas later for some silver. Now back to Joseph in this pit. If there's any doubt this whole situation was As horrible as it sounds, we get a few more details on the incident that that aren't revealed here, but if you jump ahead to Genesis 42, many years later, there are a few more details that are revealed about how Joseph responded. There, the brothers, burdened with a guilty conscience, say this in chapter 42, 21. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. So now we get a picture of Joseph's reaction as they assaulted him. He begged them. He pleaded with them to his brothers not to kill him, leave him in a pit, not to sell him into slavery. Imagine the terror of first being thrown there, left for dead, and then pulled up, what is this, just to be sold as a slave. We saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. Note they don't say in their memory, in their conscience, they don't say we saw the distress of his body. Surely he fought them off as best he could. Nor do they say we saw the distress of his face, although surely it was through that they they figured out what was going on. When when they recollect it, they say the full reality of his, his suffering is best remembered as we saw the distress of his soul. Another scripture adds a few details. Psalm 105 mentions Joseph during this trial, and it says in verse 18, his feet were hurt with fetters, chains. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Perhaps these iron shackles were put on while the slave traders were, were taking him to Egypt. Maybe he had it on during his whole uh, internship in Egypt <laughs> or, or in prison later on when he was arrested. But either way, it mentions that that was on him. But it uses this word, neck, that the collar was put on his neck. But the word neck is not actually there. It's not actually there in Hebrew at all. Now, a disclaimer, I am no Hebrew scholar. But I do play one on the internet sometimes. (laughs) And and there's some great great tools for searching original languages. And I triple-checked. The word neck is indeed not there. But the word that is there is something like his soul. His soul. In fact, it's the exact same word as in chapter 42 when it says the brother saw the distress of his soul. Some old prayer books of the church render the verse this way. An iron entered his soul. See, that captures the, the punch, the horror of just how deeply this was impacting Joseph, how much he was crushed by this. Returning to what happens next, he continues back now in chapter 39, but with a glimmer of hope. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, had bought him. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. The Lord was with Joseph. What a great verse. But if we're being a little pessimistic at this point in the story, we may wonder, was Joseph faithful to the Lord? Was Joseph with the Lord? In other words, after all his trauma, has he grown bitter? Has he grown angry? Remember the words of Job's wife after his suffering at those early stages? She said, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. It's not worth it. Give up. We'll, we'll see how Joseph Does with his integrity during his next trial, we find Potiphar's wife begins to notice Joseph and then repeatedly attempts to seduce him. Joseph could easily have taken advantage of the situation if he wanted. Instead, he resisted. But notice why in his response to Potiphar's wife. Genesis 39, 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He has put me in charge of everything that he has in my charge, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now, yes, he first lays out the wrong it would be to his to his boss, but he caps it by saying, And sin against God. So we see Joseph does hold his integrity. Now there's a there's a side note here. Uh, a quick thought experiment. Let me rabbit trail for just a second because I think this is interesting. What if Adam in the Garden of Eden had responded to Satan's temptation the way that Joseph responds to her? I suggest those are actually similar temptations and even a similar situation. Right? Take Joseph's words to the Potiphar's wife. And when he says, Potiphar has put me in charge, just replace it with God. He is Put everything under my char- God has put everything under my charge. In other words, try this. Adam to Satan would say, God has put me in charge of all his possessions here in the garden. What's more, he's charged me to have dominion over the whole earth. He's kept nothing back from me. No good thing has he withheld from me except this one thing, this one tree. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Alas, where Adam failed, Joseph succeeded, building for us yet another picture, a prefiguring of a second Adam to come. Jesus Christ, who would do all things well. And back to Joseph's story, she's still trying for him. Verse 10 And as she spoke to Joseph, day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or be with her. Now, that's some practical wisdom from Joseph, right? When we're around a temptation, Know no, how he wouldn't even be with her. He wouldn't even be near the thing. We should learn from that. Don't, don't flirt with that thing that you struggle with. Don't toy with it. Don't treat it trivially. Don't even be near it. We can learn that from Joseph. And again, Joseph does the right thing and refuses her. But as they say, no good deed goes unpunished. This woman's score now turns against Joseph and twists a final situation against him. She takes his cloak, uses it to fake a story, making him look guilty. I wonder how many actually believed her story. But anyway, she gets him thrown into prison. This is now the second time Joseph's cloak has been used against him. Right, His his colored coat was torn and had blood smeared on it to to fool his father about what was happening and deceive somebody. Now now this cloak is used against him. And it's the second time he's thrown wrongfully into a pit, a, a prison this time. See here that the Bible is very realistic about what we could expect from the world. Righteousness is no guarantee of smooth sailing, of worldly prosperity. In fact, it was because Joseph was righteous and did the right thing and took the stand that he got in trouble. Now consider 1 Peter 4.12, which says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. We should expect to see resistance, even persecution if we walk rightly. But be encouraged. Proverbs 24, 16. For the righteous fall seven times and rises again. So he, he does fall, in fact, seems like repeatedly. Don't be surprised. But he rises again. Why does a righteous man rise again? Is it his own strength? His own gumption and resilience? Well, the answer is in verse 21 of Genesis 39. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. But the Lord was with Joseph. His family wasn't with him, wasn't for him, but the Lord was with Joseph. His boss wasn't with him, but the Lord was with him. Multiple setbacks, back in prison. Certainly nothing that looked like luck was with him, but the Lord was with him. now this is a reminder for us that the Lord is with is with you. Perhaps some of you today, your family is not with you, maybe not here with you today or maybe not with you in your Christian faith. but the Lord is with you, and He is working. Perhaps your boss or co-workers, any of your circumstances are not are not with you, are not seemingly for you, but the Lord is with you. Perhaps your health, your very own body, seems to be working against you. Talk about betrayal. But the Lord is with you. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. It doesn't say the eyes of the Lord meander through the earth or... Occasionally check in briefly. No, they run back and forth. There's an eagerness, an urgency to help those who follow God with a loyal heart, like Joseph. Even when it hurts. Even when it's costly. Even when following him might cost you a job or a relationship. For that person, God is with them, with you, to give strong support. Back to Joseph. Looks like he's finally on the verge of a breakthrough. Maybe. Though he's been a slave in Egypt for 11 years now, at this point, it may seem like he's actually worse off in jail now. But a turn of providence suddenly brings these two court officials into prison. His prison, under his care. So we read next in verse 5, chapter 40. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison. So when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked them, why are your faces downcast today? Notice it's Joseph who takes the initiative. They don't, they don't go to him. Hey, does anyone know dream interpretations are on here? You know anybody? No, no, he, he goes to them and says, why are your faces downcast today? Now, surely Joseph, of all people, had a reason to be self-absorbed, self-focused on his own situation. We would not find fault with him if he said, hey, does anyone notice my face being downcast? Anyone ask about my dreams? Isn't that how we feel during our hard times? Don't people see what I'm going through? Don't they know? Don't they care? But here's a challenge for us. Do we do the same thing Joseph does here? In our hardest days, are we still paying attention to others to help with their suffering? Are we noticing the change in their countenance and saying, boy, brother or, or sister, you you don't look yourself today. Uh, what's going on? How, how can I help you? And not just toward family and friends or fellow churchmen. Note that Joseph had no normal worldly reason to help these guys. Yeah, maybe he was charged with their food and basic things, but he goes out of his way to help. He had, he had no ethic, ethnical uh, uh, connection to these guys, no national, no blood ties that he should be interested in them or help them. Uh, He had no social connection. He was a a slave, a prison slave at this point. They were the ruling elite. Maybe there was even animosity there. They had no religious connection. These guys weren't in any of the same clubs. Yet Joseph had every reason to disregard them. Yet he demonstrates Christ-like character to love even our enemies. And in doing so, he appears to finally be on the verge of freedom. We're now at the point where Joseph finally presents his case and asks a human for help. He's about to plead, remember me. You can almost feel the gears of providence turning in his favor. He's just graciously helped a high-ranking official. The cupbearer owes him one. And, and this is critical, this very man will be back in power in just three days' time. And not just a middle management in Egypt, okay? He's at the right-hand of Pharaoh. So he presses his final pitiful plea to the cupbearer, verse 14. Only remember me when it is well with you and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Remember how he begged his brothers in distress of soul to not be left in the pit? Here now for a second time He finds himself begging for help. And then he adds, here also I've done nothing. I'm innocent. And I was stolen, sold as a slave. I mean, even in Egypt at that time, to to kidnap a fellow countryman and sell them into slavery was, was the death penalty. That alone should stir all the compassion he needed to win himself an advocate. Surely now he'll catch a break. Verse 20. And on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and restored the chief cupbearer to his position. And he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Yet, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Forgot him? All the stars were aligned. This was his big break. Apparently, having saved his own skin, the cupbearer chooses to ignore Joseph. Joseph chooses to ignore the duty and obligation he had to seek justice for Joseph. As commentator Bruce Walkie notes, this is not a mental lapse. This is a moral lapse. With Friends like that, who needs enemies? Have you ever been disappointed by people when you needed help, when your face was downcast, When your case seemed good and deserving, but others seemed more concerned with their lives. Too distracted by their story to help you with yours. Of course, we know that Joseph's true hope and his true help was God. And it's the same with us. But the Lord was with Joseph. Now, later in the story, God does indeed raise him up with the book of Genesis culminating in Joseph's famous words to his brothers, he says to them, all this you meant for evil, but God meant for good. But here at this point, in this story, from the hands of men, Joseph receives only disappointment, despite all his righteousness and worthiness. We now turn briefly, if you're watching your clock, briefly, to close with some contrasts to the thief on the cross and how he asked to be remembered by God. Now, we don't have much material on him, at least compared with, with Joseph, right? But we know four things. He was guilty. He knew he was guilty. He admitted to being guilty. And he admitted that the sentence he was receiving was the just punishment for his actions. Now, it's hard to get all four of those together in one case. You know, maybe you're, you're innocent, so you're getting the wrong treatment. Or you're guilty, but I don't deserve what I'm getting, though. No, no, no. He admits it. right? This is, a, this is a closed case, solid case against him. So how does this case relate to Joseph? <laughs> well, let's first consider a few similarities. Just rapid fire here. Their helpless state. Joseph locked in a prison, no way to free himself. The thief nailed to a cross. Neither had a good plan B. Neither could present their case directly to the sovereign ruler, right? Yeah. Joseph had no access to Pharaoh. I I appeal to Pharaoh. Take me to Pharaoh. Right? Yeah, good, good luck with that, right? Same thing for the thief. How, how could he appeal to God himself? And if, and if he tried, what, what would be his grounds, right? So they both needed a powerful advocate, powerful help. Turns out, they each had just such a potential advocate nearby. For Joseph the cupbearer, who in three days' time would be lifted up to stand at the right hand of the most sovereign ruler. Sounds familiar. The thief appealing to Jesus, who likewise in three days' time will be raised to the right hand of God himself. Finally, they both had strong confidence, faith, in the outcome of their advocate. They knew their advocate would be able to help them. Joseph knew the cupbearer would surely be raised up. He says, when it goes well with you, remember me. And the thief, surprisingly, says to Jesus, when you enter your kingdom, remember me. Yet here their similarities end, and the key difference emerges. Joseph has seemingly every point done the right thing. He stayed faithful to God. He selflessly helped those around him. Yet, even while maintaining his integrity, he has suffered wrong and mistreatment at every turn. Every fiber of our emotion roots for this guy, right? The thief has, by his own admission, he's done the wrong thing at every point. He's been selfish in his violent thieving and now receives fair treatment for his crimes. And worse, both Matthew and Mark, while recording the the thieves on the cross, record that the thieves, both of them, joined in mocking and abusing Jesus, the Son of God, while on the cross. The only one that could possibly help this thief, just moments ago, is the very man he was mocking. There's no special heartstrings that should be pulled for this thief. But then this thief, repenting now, at the eleventh hour, makes an audacious request for help. Dictionary finds "audacious" as bold, daring unrestrained by law, religion, or propriety. see This guilty criminal who moments ago was mocking Jesus now asks for mercy and clemency, for help. Remember me, Lord. Jesus might rightly say, remember you. I'll remember you, all right. I'll remember your many sins and what they deserve. If, if Joseph, a righteous man with a worthy case, is let down by a man that owed him. What are the chances of this wicked man before the Son of God who owes him nothing but judgment? Here's what happens. Luke 23 43. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What a remarkable outcome. And he doesn't just say, I'll see what I can do. Maybe. You know, when your kids ask, hey, can we do such and such? And you're not sure if you really can fit in that day. Well, we'll we'll think about it. No, no, he says, today you will be with me. Full and immediate pardon, full inclusion into relationship, even. Today you will be with me. What's more, he opens with, truly, I say to you. Some old translations say, verily. In both cases, you know the actual word there? Amen. It's the word amen. This thief gets an amen to his request, seemingly against all expectations, against any merit of his own, but purely through his humble, repentant faith in Jesus, he gets a yes and an amen. So I ask all of you here today a question about Jesus. Who is this? Many people around Jesus, even his disciples, they ask a similar question. They said, who is this that heals sicknesses or drives out demons, that controls the wind and the waves, or even raises the dead? But most surprisingly, who is this that forgives sin? J.C. Ryle said, if we search the Bible through, from Genesis to Revelation, we shall never find a more striking proof of Christ's power and mercy than the salvation of the penitent thief. And Paul in Romans 5, 8 says, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now for honest though, don't we often grade our lives like we were Joseph? Don't we frame the story of all our actions and intentions as, as generally innocent with our hardships being Mostly undeserved, such that we deserve some mercy, some help, right Scripture, however, gives us a painful mirror, a painful mirror. The reality is that we're we're far more like the thief, sinful throughout our lives, often bringing the sorrows upon ourselves by our choices, and ultimately deserving of judgment. If you, if you reject this Jesus, if you stare at him on the cross, see his abundant goodness and grace, and still dismiss him as foolishness, or just kind of ignore him as somehow not for you, then no other hope remains for your soul. There will be no other mercy available before God, only justice and judgment. If we place our hope in man to save us, we will be disappointed. Especially if that man you trust in is yourself deceived with a false sense of merit. But having seen such mercy available from Jesus that transcends our understanding, we all, like the thief, should repent of our sin and humbly throw ourselves on the goodness and mercy of Jesus. For this Jesus will remember us, and he has promised to save our souls. Let's pray. Lord, like the prayer of David in Psalm 140, we would also say, I say to the Lord, you are my God. Listen, Lord, to my cry for help. Lord, we ask for your help. Please remember not our sins of youth. Please remember not our sinful thoughts, and attitudes, for there are many. But please remember your son, And his perfect life and obedience. His death in our place. And the mercy we can have in repentance and faith in him. Remind us every day what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. That all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.